0: Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I have a new friend and um, neighbor, uh, Peter Grinspoon, MD, is a primary care doctor at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he's also an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. And you've been a cannabis specialist for 25 years. Dr. Grinspoon is a popular speaker, is frequently featured in national media on issues such as cannabis, addiction, and physician health. Uh, and his private practice offers a comprehensive cannabis coaching and education, as well as certification in Massachusetts. Uh, Dr. Grinspoon is also certified as a health and life coach in order to help uh Uh, people further their goals, and follow their dreams. He offers comprehensive health and wellness coaching on a wide variety of issues for which he is uniquely qualified to help. And you have a new book, which I read, Seeing Through the Smoke, An Expert Doctor Untangles the Truth About Cannabis. I learned a lot reading this book, and I thought I knew a lot about uh, cannabis and marijuana, but I learned a lot from you, Peter. And before we get into it together, I want to just say your father was a, a pioneer uh, of of uh, cannabis. And I bought a copy of his book that came out in 1971, Marijuana Reconsidered, and it was incredibly um, controversial but well received. Uh, and um, you have a personal story with your brother that I'd like you to share because for me, this this really you know challenged the Nixon narrative that you know pot is a gateway drug that's so horrible on and on and on. We can get into that. But before I ask you to speak, I also want to reference another book that I read of yours called Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction, which is fascinating. And uh, But this is the one that I want to focus on today, and we can do a follow-up one, but we'll have a free-flowing conversation. And lastly, we were planning to do this a few weeks ago, and you had a very unfortunate, uh, horrible accident walking across Washington Street to the ice cream place and somebody without lights on hit you and tragically, you know, put you in the hospital with surgical needs or breaking your leg and, and which you're re- recovering. So I'm very grateful we're finally doing this. And I think there's a huge amount of in- interest and people need to be educated about what you've spent your lifetime learning about. So welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It's a real pleasure. We've been having a lot of great conversations recently, and it's fun to do it in a more sort of formal uh, manner.
0: Yeah. So can we start with your family history and what what moved your father a, a Harvard psychiatrist to risk so much to write a book saying, you know what, let's reconsider marijuana?
1: Well, I think my dad just had a lot of intellectual integrity. And as he used to tell it, a couple of years, he passed away a couple of years ago uh, mm. peacefully at the age of 92. But, you know, it was the late 1960s and he was thinking, what are all these young people doing smoking marijuana? What are they going to harm themselves? You know, that was the dominant narrative from the US government. That was the dominant narrative from the American psychiatric community, which there was no 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 separation between them and what the U.S. government was saying is really kind of sad. Mm-hmm. And my dad did a very, very, very deep dive. And what he realized um, is that marijuana or cannabis does have potential harms. You know, teenagers shouldn't be using it. Pregnant, breastfeeding women, we don't have any idea if it's safe. It can destabilize people who have a history of psychosis. But he came to the conclusion in 1971, right when Richard Nixon was starting his war on drugs, that the criminalization of cannabis was like, profoundly more damaging to the youth, to the people who might be using marijuana to our society in general than the actual marijuana was. So he came out in 1971. Again, at this time, only 12% of Americans believed in legalization of marijuana. Now it's uh, about 69%. It went up about a point for each of the 50 years that my dad toiled away on it. And mm. he, his book was so controversial. He was getting like death threats, but at the same time, it was Reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review. It was a bestseller. It definitely made a splash. We could say that. And it really provided, a, as you alluded to earlier, an intellectual counterweight um, to the narrative about marijuana, which was completely misleading. We now know, well, we knew back then, but most of the doctors were really on the wrong side of the war on drugs, which is a whole other topic. But my dad was very brave and courageous. And, you know, it is very fun to watch, like, him convince our society that cannabis was okay and should be legal over the last 50 years. I've witnessed this, as you alluded to as well, my entire life I've had a front row seat to the legalization movement and it's been very, very interesting.
0: Yeah, and if you don't mind sharing personally, you have a brother who was suffering greatly with leukemia, if I remember correctly. Yeah,
1: my brother was dying from leukemia. He had acute lymphocytic leukemia. Right now, today, we cure 98% of the kids, 99% with this, but back then... They just didn't have enough different chemotherapy regimens and it kept getting, um, you know, resistant to the chemotherapy. So my brother, Danny, who was older than me, he was like 16 and I was like eight, was fighting this unsuccessful battle with leukemia. And my parents had heard, obviously, because of my dad's research and connections, that cannabis can really help alleviate uh, the, the chemotherapy, the nausea, the vomiting, the weight loss. of so the illegally bought cannabis my mom went to their high school wellesley high school where he grew up and bought cannabis from a friend i write about that in my book um Mm -hmm. uh seeing through the smoke and when danny wasn't using cannabis he was lying in his bed throwing up Mm. and when he used cannabis he could eat he could hold down food he could strum on his friend fender stratocaster and most importantly to me he could like uh play with his little boisterous little brothers instead of lying in his room so I came to associate from a very early age the smell of cannabis with, first of all, my brother feeling and getting better. And second of all, we had a lot of um, legalization proponents in our house, you know, very, some very prominent people like the Allen Ginsbergs and the Carl Sagans, and a lot of, you know, just regular academics and scholars and teachers and professors. And they were always laughing and coming up with these great ideas to the world's problems, really thinking about things and really trying to change things for the better. And, you know, at school, you go and there's like the DARE program. They're like, marijuana makes you amotivational. And then at home, I'm exposed to like the most motivational people you'd ever meet. Mm. So again, from an early age, I associated the smell of marijuana smoke with healing and with like intellectual energy and with idealism and with humor. uh, I really had a different exposure than many other people did. And
0: Carl Sagan uh, was included in your father's 1971 (laughs) as what, Dr. X? Mr. X, because he, you know,
1: Carl Sagan got a lot of grants from NASA and they would have gone right away if he said, I'm Carl Sagan and cannabis helps my creative process and this is how it helps. So he was Mr. X. And when he passed away, I believe, in the early 1990s. My dad spilled the beans that Mr. X was Carl Sagan. And they managed to keep that secret for like 30 years.
0: Mm, Right, but what was it like growing up with having all these luminaries hanging out in your living room? It must have been extraordinary.
1: Well, I was a kid, so I was always listening from like the periphery, trying not to get noticed so my dad wouldn't send me up to bed. Uh And the conversations (laughs) were absolutely fascinating. They were about, you know... Nuclear war was a huge topic because, you know, this was like the 1970s and the 1980s, the Soviet Union, the Cold War, hunger, um, you know, how how humanity is going to, uh, you know, survive. You know, right. Carl Sagan would be come up with these theories of like, you know, maybe the reason we haven't seen life in other galaxies yet is because when you reach a certain technological level, you blow yourselves up. I mean, hopefully that's not true, but those are the kind of concepts mm. I was exposed to as a kid and as a preteen and as a teen. And it really made me think about things and it really made me read everything I could get my hands on. I mean, again, the cannabis and the way it was used in my household was like this spark to motivation. And it was so bizarre to go to the D.A.R.E. project and have them tell you that it makes you motivational, And I just knew they were lying. And mm-hmm. it doesn't do wonders for your respect for authority to go in and have the police officers like sitting there. And you know that they're lying to you. I, I, You know, it made me sort of a rebellious teenager.
0: Right. And you tell the story and Seeing Through the Smoke about Nixon commissioning a panel to research. Share, share that story, what Oh, happened. yeah. he
1: Nixon commissioned a panel. He was hoping that his panel would say, cannabis is evil, it's bad, it causes, you know, low motivation, sperm count to drop, blah, blah, blah. And his panel actually, uh, the Schaefer Commission came in and said, uh, this drug isn't it said a lot very similar to what my dad said in this book. you know it has its potential harms. There are certain people who should use with extreme caution, if at all, but generally speaking, it is relatively safe compared to a lot of the other stuff that we use and should be not only it should be decriminalized and Nixon just flat out said, I know I commissioned a, uh, you know, a, a panel of experts. I've read the report, and I'm going to make the executive decision to say the exact opposite and to do the exact opposite. It was such a fail. But the commission did give a lot of hope, intellectual firepower, and sustenance to the legalization movement, even if Nixon ignored it.
0: Yes. And Nixon, bad actor. Uh, Uh, Nixon
1: loved my dad, by the way. Uh, I have a daily briefing from Nixon about my dad's book, Marijuana Reconsidered. mm -hmm. And my dad's name is circled, and it says H, which means Haldeman. H, I'm sure I remember this guy. This clown is far to the left. That so, Nixon actually called my dad a clown, which my dad wore as a board, uh, you know badge of honor.
0: Yeah, it, and and uh, so let's move on because there's so much to cover. And here in Massachusetts, medical marijuana is now licensed. And different states are decriminalizing marijuana as well as legalizing marijuana. And I believe a few states with psilocybin as well. There's an incredible amount of research into psychedelic uh, applications to help victims of trauma. Went to the American Psychiatric Association. I was astounded at how many presentations there was on that. So I really want you to tell my listeners what, what you think they need to know about, you know, the time we're living in and, and the benefits and, you know, the cautionary things and why you're a consultant. And people can ask you about their specifics. Absolutely. Now,
1: I let's start with cannabis. Cannabis is a helpful tool in my toolbox as a primary care doctor. It doesn't help everybody. Some people have a bad reaction to it and some people just don't like it. But that's true for all of the other medications that I have. The right. good thing about cannabis is that you can't die from it, nobody has a fatal overdose. If I give you penicillin for your strep throat, you literally could die. Uh, So I actually feel less anxious prescribing cannabis than I do many of these other pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. It most commonly helps people with chronic pain, insomnia, and anxiety. But there are a million other uses, you know, colitis, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome. But um, again, the key to it is to really start low and to go slow. People go to a dispensary and they'll get a, someone will upsell them a huge, really powerful gummy or a drink. And what happens if you take too much cannabis is you have a very, very anxious reaction. You don't die, but it's absolutely miserable. So for anybody just starting cannabis or for people that are new to cannabis after 30 to 40 years, I can't tell you how many boomers I know who take took the same three bong hits that they took in college. But mm. the problem is the marijuana now is like 22%. THC, the active ingredient, where back then it was like 3%. So the three bong hits they take is like taking 20 bong hits, and then they freak out. So just take one puff, just take a quarter of a gummy, get started really slowly. And as I mentioned before, uh, we... We don't recommend cannabis for teenagers i mean you know my I'm brother glad you're dying. Just
0: repeating that yeah yeah
1: i mean they're my brother danny and they're dying of cancer like they're dying let them have some cannabis but generally or also autism um, is an interesting mostly with cbd the non-psychoactive component but but if there's not a compelling indication we say to teenagers just say wait we want you to wait at least until you're 18 and the reason is is that there's pretty good evidence uh, the cannabis can affect the developing brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and and most teenagers don't want to hurt their brains. You know, they'll try cannabis, sure. It's not going to hurt them to try it, but we don't want them to be regular users at all until they're 18. And again, I don't recommend that they try it, but just understanding the nature of teenagers. Like if you say, don't try this, the first thing you are going to do is try this. And, and they're going
0: to be influenced by peers more than what doctors or parents say anyway.
1: Absolutely. Though, interestingly, with legalization, the prohibitionists were concerned and were arguing that teenage use would go up, but actually teenage use has been stable or has been going down since legalization. And we don't know if that's because, you know, a drug dealer will sell it to anybody, whereas at the dispensaries, if you don't have a ID, you're not even getting in the door. Or if it's just seeing grandma on the couch taking a toke or two for her rheumatoid arthritis just makes it that much less cool. It's not a fun, it's not exciting thing if grandma's doing it, you know, so we don't know why, but so teenagers shouldn't use it. And and um, we don't know that it's safe in pregnancy and breastfeeding. And a, a lot of pregnant women are using it. It's very effective mm-hmm. for nausea, for morning sickness. But that doesn't mean it's safe. But, you know, at the other hand, the other things we use aren't particularly safe either. So we right. just need to do a lot more research. But the problem is you can't really do research on pregnant women, like give a thousand cannabis, give a thousand a placebo and see if there are birth defects. Like that's an yeah. unethical So, and then people with a history of a mental illness have to be very careful. People with a history of psychosis because it could destabilize people. But aside from that, I'm happy to try it in my primary care clinic or in my private practice. And again, a lot of people find benefit. Not everybody, but a lot of people do.
0: Great. And I watched a CNN documentary uh, (laughs) that Sanjay Gupta did. I think it was a CNN Anderson Cooper thing on Israel and older people and the dispensaries and i didn't know that it was actually an israeli researcher who first identified am i remembering correctly th
1: absolutely rafael mechulam uh was an israeli chemist who mm-hmm. decided to study marijuana uh, no one else was studying it you couldn't really study it in the united states because of you know very very strictly controlled mm-hmm. um This was even before Nixon. This was like in the 1950s. It was like the Boggs Act. Like if you got caught with marijuana, you can go to prison for 10 years. Nobody was studying it here. Mm. And he discovered THC. And he, like my dad, was like the Energizer bunny. He worked on this for like 60, 70 years. He passed away about a year ago. Uh, He was wonderful, but uh, he discovered the active ingredient of marijuana, which is THC. And they also discovered a whole set of neurotransmitters and receptors in our body called the endocannabinoid system, which is incredibly important. It's sort of like our adrenaline system or our nicotinic system. There's a million different neurotransmitter systems. And this one in particular controls all of the other ones. It controls temperature, feeding, hunger, reproduction, memory. Um, And uh, unfortunately, they're not teaching it in most American medical schools. Uh, Israel is on fire with its medical cannabis research. A lot of other countries are too, and we've just gotta catch up with them. It's a little bit embarrassing. We're not even teaching our doctors about, even if you don't like cannabis, or you think it's not a medicine, you should understand the endocannabinoid system because it's critical to our physiology. And it's also, how can you understand cannabis if you don't understand how the receptors work? We don't understand adrenaline if we don't understand the epinephrine system. So. We have so, a lot of work to do.
0: I want you to share some of your knowledge with my listeners. There are two types of of cannabis. One that's more arousing for certain people and more anxiety reducing. What are the names? And yep, there's indica,
1: which is the relaxing type. Indica, you're just you know very good for pain, good for anxiety, but it doesn't make you particularly energetic. And then there's like sativa, Mm -hmm. which makes people up and energetic. You clean your house, you go out to a party or, um, you know, it's interesting. Those were originally botanical differences Mm -hmm. um, because the sativas, the ones that make you up and energetic are very tall plants. And the indicas are these short scrubby plants. Hmm. But during the Reagan's War on Drugs, they would go over with helicopters and infrared sensors. And it became much too dangerous to grow the sativas uh, for the outdoor growers. They'd all get arrested, so they hybridized the hmm. sativas and the indicas. so You could have the best of both, and they wouldn't be as tall, and you couldn't see them be seen. You could grow them without being snooped on from above. Hmm. So most of what we get is actually a mixture of indica, and sativa because of Reagan's helicopters. But generally speaking, if you ask for something, an indica, it denotes, even though we still don't have the botanical definition because they've been hybridized, an indica denotes something that will help you relax and help you with pain, and the sativa is something that might help someone who has ADHD who really wants to focus or be up or accomplish a lot of things.
0: Yep, but uh, I think we've reached a point now uh, where we need to look at the science, and we need to have really grounded approach, and and that's why your consulting work is so valuable, because you have this deep knowledge, and I highly recommend physicians read your book, but talk more about the different types of non-THC cannabinol effects and how they can be useful. There are 4 million official
1: medical marijuana patients in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and many, many more people just buy it recreationally and use it. And they've done polls of, of recreational dispensaries. Uh, people going, and you know, two-thirds of them will say they use it for pain. Three-quarters will say they use it for sleep. So I think that... The other thing I want to mention is that, like, while recreational marijuana is still sort of being debated in this country, mm. uh, you know, two-thirds are in favor, more than half of Republicans are in favor, but not everybody. Mm-hmm. 94% of Ameri- of Americans, like, literally 94% support legal access to med- medical marijuana. So, mm-hmm. unless your enemies are in the 6% who <laughs> are don't approve of it, I think that you're not going to get attacked. Exactly so. Um, you know, but it is interesting, Uh, as you alluded to, cannabis is a a plant with 500 different molecules in it, many of which are, you know, affect our brain or psychoactive, have an effect. Uh, So that's why there are different strains. We talked about the sativas and the indicas, but it also points to a lot of uh, what are called minor cannabinoids. The major cannabinoids are THC, the one that gets you high Mm -hmm. and CBD, which is uh, the one that one in seven Americans are taking. People generally know what CBD is, but CBD helps with uh, chronic pain, with anxiety, with insomnia, and it doesn't give you a high. Mm-hmm. So for the people that don't like the high, which is a lot of people, uh, CBD could be really, really effective. Or you use mostly CBD and add a little bit of THC in, and then the people can get relief from their insomnia, from their pain, from their anxiety, um, without uh, w- without being becoming impaired. Um, I also want to say CBD is mm-hmm. very good for public speaking. Um, uh, a lot of people find public speaking like one of the most terrifying things that they could possibly happen to of the them. P- like most common phobias. About.
0: Yeah. For <laughs> exactly. Sure.
1: They did a study with C B D and it really helped people before public speaking. And you know, what a lot of people do before public speaking is take a beta blocker like propranolol, but that can make you a little bit sleepy and dull. If I were worried about public speaking, I'd definitely pick the C B D. And it helps with childhood epilepsy. Uh, it's is an FDA-approved drug at Pulidex uh, to help alleviate childhood epilepsy, which is also very funny that the US government is still maintaining that cannabis has no medical utility, but FDA has approved several cannabis-based drugs. THC is legal too, and, and Marinol for 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 nausea and for well, for weight loss. Mm-hmm. Um, CBD is also very interesting for addiction. Mm. There are animal studies and a few human studies, very good animal data for like addiction to amphetamines like cocaine and methamphetamine, mm. and in humans, there's some studies for cannabis addiction because I forgot to mention a certain perpe- portion of people do get addicted to cannabis. It's been very much exaggerated by the US government. It's been very much exaggerated by the psychiatric community. I, I, I just write a lot in my book about why they're so off on cannabis. They completely miss the mark. Um, they define cannabis way addiction way too broadly, but but in fact, a certain three you know, to five percent will get will get addicted, and they need to be treated with empathy and compassion, like people with any other addiction need to be. So that's another another. While well, we're talking about the benefits and the harms, it's important to mention. Yeah,
0: I, I can't help but just insert: Big Pharma makes a fortune with their drugs, and they don't want <laughs> cheap alternatives <laughs> that people can. So, you know, medicates and, you know, they have a business and they want, you know, they want a monopoly.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right. On every single state level ballot initiative, Big Pharma's donated uh, very heavily on the let's keep c- cannabis illegal side of the equation. Uh, you know, like in um, New Mexico, there was Insys. That was a company that got in trouble for like uh, giving doctors kickbacks for selling fentanyl lollipops, but they're not a good company. But they donated $500,000 against legalization, yet they were designing their own cannabis-based drugs because mm. uh, they're learning about the endocannabinoid system. So the Big Pharma had this vision of cannabis being illegal, yet you have to buy drugs that basically do what cannabis does for tons of money and, and they are losing. Yeah. Uh, we're winning the legalization battle. I could tell you that after, after watching it for 57 years, which is how old I am. Yeah. Um, but you know, interesting thing, the last thing I'll say is that they're taking a don't, if you can't beat them, join them attitude. And same with the alcohol companies. Alcohol found cannabis to be a very serious threat. It is a threat to alcohol. People transition and it's less dangerous and in my opinion, much more interesting and fun. Uh, and less fattening, but, um, <laughs> you know, so both the alcohol industry and the uh, pharma industry are taking a, and the tobacco industry are taking a, if you can't beat them, join them. So they're merging, they're trying to take over, they're buying in. And there's a lot of concern about the cannabis industry, like who's going to be running it? Is it going to be the little guy, the local grower, or are we just going to have like Budweiser version of cannabis, which nobody really wants?
0: Right. And I, I also want to just add in terms of the forces that I think are responsible for for keeping it illegal and to give it a bad name the um, the privatization of our prison systems uh, to send especially minority people in huge numbers to jail for long periods of time because they have a joint or
1: oh I couldn't agree with you more I have a whole chapter in my book on the war on cannabis users we've had First of all, blacks and whites use cannabis at the same rate, mm. and blacks have been arrested four times as often as whites. And getting arrested can mean going to prison. But even if you're not going to prison, it can affect your student loans, your education, your right. housing, your employment. And we've had twenty million, more than twenty million arrests for nonviolent cannabis possession in the last fifty years. I mean, this is causing generational poverty uh, to many communities that have been targeted, and. Um, you know, that's why a lot of the talk around legalization doesn't just talk, uh, swirl around, let's make it legal so you don't get in trouble. A lot of it also includes trying to expunge some of those criminal records so that these people can go back to having normal lives and trying to funnel some of the wealth and some of the prosperity that this new, the cannabis industry is like in the tens of billions of dollars, and it's gonna hmm. just keep growing, funnel some of that wealth back to these communities that have been devastated. So there's a lot of talk about reparations and about expungements and about social justice and equity, and it's really, really important that we pay attention to that stuff because it's really wrong what's been perpetrated upon cannabis users.
0: Yeah, great, it's so important. And uh, so what I I want to... Um, Push you a little bit, if I may, and say, because um, you've been consulting with people who come with problems, like what are some of the things that that doctors uh, need to think about, and what are some of the like dual diagnosis, or what are the indicators? Because you say clearly in your book, some people really do get addicted, and it really is a problem. You talk about, you know, uh throwing up uh as as an issue and how to discern what's causing it. And especially if it's a person who's on other medications. So share a little bit of, of how you think about um when you're when people are coming. Hey, hey doc, what do I do?
1: Right. Well, you that was actually about six questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Go for just, it in just whatever to tackle order the, you want.
1: No problem. Just to tackle the vomiting part. Um Cannabis is wonderful for people who have nausea and vomiting, Mm. people with chemotherapy and people, pregnant women, which is why so many use them, Mm -hmm. use it, even though I think they shouldn't necessarily be using it unless we, but there's not really much that's safer. But um, if you use it heavily on a daily basis, you could have a paradoxical reaction. People have a paradoxical reaction, which means like the opposite occurs, like. Mm. Most people, Benadryl makes sleepy, but like, you know, 0.5%, it makes like wire. They just have the opposite reaction. Mm. The receptor works in the opposite way. And uh, if you use cannabis very heavily, you can develop something called cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, which means you're barfing uncontrollably and you have to be overnight in the hospital to get hydrated. And it's really, really ugly. Um, If you're in the emergency department and someone comes in and they use cannabis and they're throwing up uncontrollably, it's either something called cyclic vomiting syndrome or it's cannabis hyperemesis. And the only way to tell the difference is to stop using cannabis for three months. Mm. And, um, you know, if it goes away, it was the cannabis. If it doesn't go away, it's cyclic vomiting, which is really important because they're different treatments. Like, you're really never going to stop the vomiting and the overnights in the ER, which are in the hospital, which are awful if you have cannabis hyperemesis, if you don't modify or stop your cannabis use, ideally, stop it. Now, My definition to get back to an earlier question of addiction is continued use despite negative circumstances, negative consequences. So continued use despite negative consequences. And I've had patients that can't stop their cannabis use for three months just to see if that's what's causing them to be in the hospital like several nights a month. And to me, that's addiction. That's like continued use despite negative consequences. If your doctor who's not obviously anti-cannabis at all is saying you have to stop just for three months and you can't do it, that makes me worried about an addiction. Um, To get to your broader question, you know, when a patient comes in, I use the same calculus uh, as I would um, for any other patient. You know, what's ailing them? Have we done all the lifestyle things to help them? Do they need a medication? The only difference is I include cannabis. Mm. In addition, say they're in pain, you know, there's opiates, there's uh, non-steroidals, your Advil, your ibuprofen, your Naperson, there's um Tylenol which doesn't really do that much and then I have cannabis so I feel like I have an extra tool in my toolbox and I feel like the other doctors you know they just there's been taught nothing about cannabis they're not taught about like something like 8% of medical students say they're taught anything about medical marijuana during um during medical school and and the problem is like almost 100% of patients want to talk about it so you have this um situation where the doctors haven't been taught anything. And what little they've been taught isn't even true. They're just still taught some of these drug war myths from the psychiatrists and the U.S. government in the 1970s. Um, and I just think doctors need to know enough about cannabis to have a sensible discussion with a patient. They need to know, sorry, you're you pregnant. You can't use it. Or sorry, you're 16. We don't recommend it. Or mm-hmm. sorry, you, you had, were in the psychiatric hospital for bipolar last year. We don't recommend it. It might destabilize you. Or to be like, you have chronic pain, why don't we start with a very you know, modest tincture, mostly CBD, a little bit of THC, try a drop at night, try a couple drops the next night, work your way up slowly. I mean, doctors can do this. And I feel like doctors haven't done a good job of making people feel comfortable and non-judged and not stigmatized. So what happens is that most people don't mention their cannabis use to their doctors. And they go and see a medical cannabis doctor, like like me, for example. and and there's no communication you know um it's a different there's no it's not in the medical records the medical cannabis doctor doesn't know the specialist doesn't know what worked and didn't work in the past and then the the regular doctors don't know that the patient's using cannabis and it's really important because number one there's some medication interactions uh for example CBD works just like grapefruit juice it can raise the level of other medications in your blood by competing for the liver enzymes that remove it from your blood. Hmm. So if you're on a blood thinner, your doctor has to know if you're taking something with CBD in it. Uh, There's also changes in anesthesia requirements. If you're a heavy cannabis user, you might require more anesthesia. Hmm. Not a big deal if the anesthesiologist knows about it. Everybody takes different things, but if the anesthesiologist doesn't know about it, it makes anesthesia more dangerous. So again, The lack of communication about cannabis is much more dangerous than the actual cannabis itself.
0: Right. So, what are you doing to train doctors? Are you offering any webinars or workshops or?
1: Well, I wrote my book, which is great for doctors because it goes over all the harms, real and imagined, with the latest science. It goes over all the benefits, real and purported but not substantiated with all of the science. Um, I I speak a lot to physician groups. Um, you know, to psychiatrists or to primary care doctors. And I really, really enjoy doing that. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm working on some webinars. I think a webinar, for example, on what is the endocannabinoid system and why is it important would be a very helpful thing because there just isn't a great source. Everybody complains that there's no good sources, but uh, you're absolutely right. I should do more to, to help alleviate that.
0: No, I'm telling you, I read your book, and it was like, whoa, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> and it's
1: interesting, too, right? It's very
0: it's very well written, so I'm giving you a, a big endorsement on that. But if I may switch to you, your other book for a minute, because we're suffering this huge opo- opioid crisis in the United States, and you yourself fell victim to addiction to opioids. Are you willing oh, to yeah. share a little bit about that? Because I think that provides an extra insight into what's happening in our culture and our uh, society. Absolutely.
1: Now, I wouldn't put get addicted to opiates, ruin your life, uh, get recover from addiction and help other doctors as part of the medical school curriculum. <laughs> I, I certainly say it gives you like certain understanding of addiction that you can't possibly have. I mean- on a certain level, people who have never been addicted, and you know, 20 million people are addicted in the US, and about 20 million are in recovery from addiction. If you haven't been addicted, you think sort of, why don't you just stop taking drugs? <laughs> but it's so much more complicated than that. Right. I've written extensively about that, about how it takes over your brain, and your morality, and your thoughts, and you're just trying not to withdraw. But I, I developed this horrible addiction to prescription painkillers. Now. Mm-hmm. Doctors are very susceptible to this because we have the same stresses that everybody else does, you know, sick parents, sick kids, divorce, bipolar, whatever. And also we have this expectation that we function every day as these flawless robots that just provide care. And we also have to deal with everybody else's problems, which is really, really draining. And then the fourth thing is we are now trying to provide like, pretty good care in a system that's in collapse. I mean, it's so exploitative and nobody's happy with like, nobody can even find a primary care doctor anymore, let mm-hmm. alone get into a specialist. So, um, and then we had the access to these medications, you know, we have refills, we have a prescription pad, we have mm-hmm. samples, people bring in their meds to the office. So that's why I call my book free refills. And unfortunately it culminated, I didn't get help. I thought I had it under control, like most doctors do, doctor heal myself. And I didn't get help until the state police and the DEA raided my office, which was not a fun day. I would not highly recommend it to anybody. And then I basically, long story short, lost my license for three and a half years, got it back. And then about five years later, the Massachusetts Medical Society, their physician health service, the body of people that helps doctors who are in distress, invited me to be an associate director and to help other doctors with their addiction. So I sat at the same exact table only on the other side, helping other doctors that had just been caught. And it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. And the fact is people can overcome addictions. It's very difficult. I've written extensively about this. We need to be open-minded about treatments. We need to use the medications that are available for opiates. We have suboxone and methadone. They both cause a 50 to 80% reduction in death from overdose. The Mm -hmm. only problem is because of our a uh, very fragmented medical system only 20% of people who need suboxone or methadone actually get it that's mm-hmm. why we're still having 110,000 overdose deaths every year and also we need to the recovery community needs to be mo- more open minded enough of the 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 cult like and i know that's going to be a big word for you but the cult like uh, attitude of alcoholics anonymous where you know one is too many a thousand is never enough abstinence for life and we need to welcome people are on suboxone, who are in methadone. We need to welcome people who are using psychedelics for the recovery, which you recently had an excellent show on. We need to welcome people who are using cannabis instead of alcohol or opiates, you know, definitely harm reduction. You're not going to die from the cannabis, even if you're not using it in a great way. Um, so there's a lot of work we could do. But the most important thing is that we need to not give up on people who are addicted. The reason I'm alive and talking to you today is that nobody gave up on me, even though I'd be stealing pills, I'd be lying, I'd be secretive, I'd do all the things that you do when you're addicted that I'm not at all proud of, but I I understand now and I've sort of forgiven myself. But nobody, my friends, my family, my colleagues, nobody gave up on me. And um, if you have an addicted person in your life, you have to just keep loving them and believing in them. Uh, You know, if they're stealing your money, you hide your wallet. If they're breaking in, you could change the locks, you could protect yourself, but don't give up on them. If you take one of these tough love approaches, like I'm going to let the... Addict find their bottom. They're going to end up dead. So please don't do that. Just be empathic, be patient, and get them the help that they need.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm just I'm I'm in awe of your strength and but also your integrity and your desire to help others. And as a survivor of a cult, people say you're uniquely qualified to help others who are in cults and. And in terms of, you know, the 12-step program, I just say if it works for you, great. But if you believe that's the only way you can exist, then you have to walk around always believing you're an addict, even though you haven't used in 30 years, or believe you're powerless, that I have a problem with as a therapist. But if it works for you great, the community, the 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 being with people who aren't trying to and t- you know, uh, coax you uh, into drinking or whatever, using the drugs. But I, I I've started in my own personal um, way, uh, trying to encourage you to learn about clinical hypnotherapy as a modality to help people control their own mind and body and deal with some of the underlying aspects that are driving these problematic behaviors. And I hope you take me up on my recommendation and get some clinical training in hypnotherapy because honestly, there's a lot of people who can't afford the medications, don't have access, but they can learn how to relax their anxiety and their stresses and and have positive suggestions and such.
1: There is good data for hypnotherapy treating treating addiction, though. A lot of people get hypnotized smoking cigarettes, and it, it does have a, a fairly high quit rate. So I, I'm eager to learn more about that. I I suspect my next book is going to have something to do with addiction, and I certainly will uh, make a commitment to learn more about that. Um, I certainly read the books you've given me that are sitting uh, right next to my desk (laughs) in my house. (laughs) Yeah,
0: my listeners probably know that I am involved with the New England Society for Clinical Hypnosis and the American Society of Hypnosis. And I've recently written two chapters for the International Society of Hypnosis textbooks on the dark side of hypnosis, because most destructive cult leaders are using hypnosis uh, and methodology on their followers and their oblivious understanding. Uh I
1: I do have to add that you gave me a bunch of hypnosis tapes and I'm very grateful. When I was in my very dark days in the hospital about six weeks ago, right after getting mowed down by this woman, and I was literally in excruciating pain and I couldn't sleep and my roommate was moaning Mm. and uh, I listened to the hypnosis tapes and they really, they helped me fall asleep. Uh, And, you know, none of the, it was so bad that even though they were giving me pretty heavy duty pharmaceuticals, I couldn't sleep. And I think the hypnosis is really... What helped me relax enough so that I could just drift off. Yeah, asleep. and they're so clinical
0: really appreciate- hypnotherapists who have recorded tapes and CDs and downloads. Uh, Michael Yapko is one of the ones that I shared with you, and you download it, and I believe in, you know, I have a little iPod Nano. It's out of date, but I use it, and <laughs> yeah. I, if I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm having trouble with racing thoughts, I put it on and I just go back to sleep. And it's uh, it's a good tool in the tool. It seems like
1: meditation. If you got into the habit of like a daily practice, you'd be a lot less anxious. Yeah, That's sort of my sense.
0: Yeah, so I believe in meditation. There are many cults that claim they have the only meditation that works, like TM, which I you know really think is a problematic group. But I really just believe in 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 focusing on your breath and doing a diaphragmatic breathing you know in through the nose to a count of 4 out through the mouth uh, pursed lips to a count of 6 and 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 letting this st- believing the stress is leaving your body with every exhale and relaxation is coming in with the inhale and it it works for me i just did it while you're talking about it and i feel much more relaxed Yeah, But, you know, when you think about (laughs) it. You're just saying
1: that, Peter. (laughs) No, I do. I actually, it's hard not to feel relaxed when you're doing a breathing exercise. But we have a crisis of anxiety and of loneliness and a huge mental health crisis combined with the fact that nobody can find a therapist. It's hard to find a psychiatrist. You can't find a primary care doctor. So we're going to have a big need for these uh, modalities that people can do on their own in a perfect world. They can have access to meditation, hypnosis, all the things you do at home, exercise, but also see a psychiatrist, see their doctor, see a therapist. But right. the access is getting worse and worse and worse. In my clinic, you know, which is I work at a really prestigious hospital. There's a one-year wait list to see a therapist. Like, how does that help to have a one-year wait list? Um, but that's everywhere. I'm not just, you know, no, criticizing. It's true. My, no, it's, yeah, so.
0: it's uh, a lot of people have burned out. Doctors have burned out. Therapists have burned out. And some have committed suicide because they really burned out and they didn't get the help that they needed. So I'm I'm increasingly just telling people, it's your mind, it's your body, you need to be in charge, and don't look outside for for solutions. Figure out how you work and what works for you. And right, the only
1: problem is people can be working three jobs to try to make ends meet. It's hard to find the time and the space to really do that for, yeah. for a lot of people. They're working harder for less, and yes, people are sort of slowly sinking Socioeconomically, and our medical system is sort of slowly sinking. So, yeah, these things are more important than ever, but it's also hard for people to sort of do when they're that stressed out.
0: Yes, exactly. And I have to mention social media and the fact that people are on their smartphones eight to 10 hours a day, especially young people, and it's causing them to be anxious and depressed. And it's no substitute as you were thanking your family and friends for believing in you and supporting you, like having real people in your life that you can sit with and not just followers on the internet, but like really rich, enriching relationships and friendships.
1: That's actually a huge component of recovery from addiction. You know, as you get addicted, you're your emotional connections increasingly become with your drug of choice. For me, it was like snorting, you know, whatever, taking Vicodin or snorting oxycodone. And um, you tune out real relationships. And part of it's how our brain is configured. They say eating a good meal is like 10 units of dopamine and taking methamphetamine is like 1,000 units of dopamine. It's hard for our brain to to compete um, with the normal, healthy pleasures of life is really difficult. But a huge part of recovery from addiction is finding a way for like taking a walk in the woods with a friend to become as rewarding again as the oxycodone was. And it happens. It just takes time and you have to like stay the course and put one foot in front of the other, but your brain goes back to normal. But just when you immediately quit in the first couple months, you just think you're never going to enjoy anything again. It's really difficult. We need to mm-hmm. particularly support People in early recovery because there's always like you just take the drug and you're back into like euphoric bliss again. It's very difficult to hold the course.
0: Right. And uh, regarding smartphones and and <laughs> online, like turn off the phone, try, take a day off, take a week off, and your brain starts going back to normal if you yeah, if you I, stop. I,
1: I, I really applaud your, your including, I tend to focus on the drugs when I talk and the behavioral addictions can be just as destructive. A sex addiction, the social media, gambling, shopping. I mean, it just it's just doing something to feel happy when you're not happy that isn't really something that causes happiness. I, I couldn't agree with you more.
0: Right. And now the research is saying happiness should not be your goal uh, mattering is what really is fulfilling for people long term and finding purpose in your life and like what what am i what what do i want to do with this amazing opportunity to be alive and a lot of it's about contributing to others and those relationships that are so critically important
1: i i you know i not a huge fan of the 12 steps but there is elements of the 12 steps that i fully agree with and like the 12th step is about helping other people who are addicted to help maintain your own uh, recovery. And I, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I really just feel like whenever I'm unhappy, uh, you know, I try to focus on helping other people and then I find that I'm, I'm thinking about them and I'm not like sitting on my pity pot, you know, poor me, poor me, poor me. So Mm-mm. I couldn't agree with you more. I think helping other people is a great way not only to help other people <laughs> make the world a better place, but also to help your own mood and your own sense of self-worth.
0: Yes, it feels good to help other people and people say, "Steve, I don't know how you've been doing this for 47 years." And it's really not the trolls that call me names. Uh, it's the people who say, "I read your book, it saved my life," or, you know, "I heard a podcast and thank you so much. I had no idea." And that that gives me meaning and purpose and and says there's more people out there that like maybe listening to Peter Grinspoon and realizing, hmm, maybe I need to revisit the uh, you know uh, uh the whole topic of cannabis. Well, I
1: I do want to mention to sneak in uh, your book Combating Mind Control had a huge influence on me. I'm sure you've heard that from a lot of different people, but I thought I knew about cults. I had no idea. I mean, I knew a little bit more just from being your friend and from us talking about it, but There are a lot of groups that I didn't know were cults, like the Jehovah's Witness. You don't think they're a cult. You don't realize that they treat people really poorly and that they exploit people and control their finances and trap them. I mean, it it was so mind blowing and it was also mind blowing the psychology involved. I I just Mm -hmm. learned a lot of psychology and a lot about cults. I would recommend combating mind control to anybody. I know it's an old book that's been updated several times, but it just Mm -hmm. seemed like incredibly relevant and it's gonna affect how I act as a primary care doctor because If I have a thousand patients, right, that I'm in charge of, tell me that one of them or two of them aren't in a cult. I mean, it's just so, it's so much more common than I thought. And it's actually something that the problem is doctors are overwhelmed and they have too many things we're supposed to be looking out for, like tobacco, you know, domestic violence, you know, but uh, drug use. But I I think it's really important for doctors to, just like you think doctors should read my book, I actually really think doctors Uh, should read your book combating Mind control, because how do we know about it? If nobody teaches us about cults in medical school, they're teaching us about how the kidney works, right. which is also really important. They did too much to know, but it. they can't just skip cults because, okay. I mean, roughly speaking, what percentage of people are in cults? Would you say like 1% or, I, or
0: have been? There's no good data, but mm. I can tell you a psychiatrist friend of mine who uh, worked at McLean after he took my course, said, Steve, there are four people on my inpatient that I never realized were raised in authoritarian cult groups and that the root of their problems were not the diagnoses, but the root of their problem was, was you know, Trauma. Not di- and the dissociative identity where you're not allowed to be yourself or, you know, it's homophobic or whatever. And I just want to c- come back to Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, um, They had a huge pedophilia issue with they had a list of over 35,000 pedophiles that they didn't turn over to the police and they permitted to continue to abuse other children. But as a doctor, doctors need to know their whole belief system around no blood transfusions was a made up thing that had nothing to do with the founder and tens of thousands of people have died for no reason except that they were told they're going to you know be kicked out of the group and God will you know, judge them forever if they take a blood transfusion.
1: Well, funny that you say that because about 10 years ago I had a patient. I, he is no longer alive, but um, he was a Jehovah's witness and he had um, Crohn's disease and uh, you know he needed surgery. and he asked me to find him a surgeon that would guarantee that he would not give him a blood transfusion during surgery. And I wish I had known you uh, back then about 10 years ago, but I can absolutely guarantee no surgeon in their right mind would make that commitment. Right. The patient's bleeding out because you hit the wrong artery and just bad luck. Uh, you need to transfuse them. So I just said to him, "There's, I can ask you around, but I can absolutely guarantee that uh, there's no surgeon that's going to agree, because you're a Jehovah's Witness, to, to do surgery, but to not give you a transfusion if you're bleeding to death. Right. And it's interesting to hear you say that's not even, that's so sad. That's not even part of their doctrine.
0: It It is part of their doctrine now, but it wasn't their original, the original doctrine. Dog. And there's no, and they keep changing it a little <laughs> bit. They can have blood parts of this type or that part. But the bottom line is, is they're ignoring science and well, the,
1: the other, the other, fa- the practical factor is like, I'd never convinced my patient of this, uh, it, I could tell him this until he's blue in the face and he'd still hold on to his beliefs was a feeling that I got.
0: Well, but then that's where, you know, and again, everybody's overworked and there's no time, but there are former JWs who understand who could be brought in. Uh, one would need to find out if the, if the group is visiting them in the hospital, you know, and um, and the bottom line is, is there are people who have watched and allowed their own children die from an, a, a car accident where they bled to death. Then they wake up and get out of the cult and realize that it's not God's only truth and their Bible doesn't actually hold any, um, you know, scholarly value. And they feel guilty the rest of their life that they, they let their child die for no That's reason. It's awful.
1: But one thing that was interesting about this patient is that I did suggest medical marijuana. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't know what the Jehovah's Witnesses, if they allow that. So we actually asked the elders and they said, sure, no problem. And he started using it. And he said, Hey, for the first time when I was driving, I could look to the left and look to the right. And I'm like, How have you been driving all these years? Right. But but it was interesting that he asked his elders, and they actually were open to medical marriage. I was really surprised. I, for, I don't know I'm why, surprised. but I surprised.
0: Never heard that one before. I'll yeah, have to but check. But wouldn't in. you
1: expect them to kind of say no if they don't allow blood transfusions?
0: Yeah, I, I don't so the, the bottom line is there's so many people exiting the the watchtower now and former high-up people as well. And uh and that's my excitement is that uh this the people are reclaiming their power, exiting and then wanting to help their loved ones who are still in the group because they have a very heavy shunning, this fellowshipping practice where People are not allowed to talk to their own children or their own parents or their own siblings if they're you know, kicked out of the group because they don't obey the rules of the governing body. But coming back to your incredible book, um, Seeing Through the Smoke, a Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. I have one, two. <laughs> we got it on both screens. Um, as we're beginning to wrap up. Uh, Maybe you can summarize some of your takeaways and maybe someone from a government administration somewhere around the world will be listening to this. What What do you want to say to them too?
1: Sure. Well, the takeaway is that we all need to sort of look at marijuana from scratch. We all have these strong opinions about it because it's been at the front and center of the culture war for the last half century. And, you know, the people who are against it just won't believe in any of the benefits, they still put medical marijuana in these derogatory quotation marks, even though there are like four million medical marijuana patients in this country who are doing well. And many, many more as we discussed who are using it medically, but aren't official medical marijuana patients that you could track. Mm -hmm. The pro-cannabis people, whenever there's a study that says, you know, this causes this potential harm, they say, oh, the government's lying because the government did lie. Uh, for so many years about cannabis, which I yeah. document in my book. Right. But if you use marijuana, you should want to know the harms, right? I I'm not a big drinker, but I know the harms of alcohol. So you know, and then I still might have a beer at a barbecue, but I make an informed decision. So right. I just think the anti people need to learn more about the pros with an open mind, and the pro people need to know more about the harms. So that's why I very meticulously went through all of the potential harms and all the potential benefits and said, what does the science say? Let's look at cancer, right? Cannabis does not cure cancer. If you have cancer, you see an oncologist, and you use the cannabis for the pain, the anxiety, the nausea, the weight loss. Mm. Uh, In cells, certain components of cannabis, the minor cannabinoids kill cancer cells, Hmm. but that doesn't mean it kills cancer in humans. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now they develop cannabis-based drugs that are chemotherapeutic, Right now, there's no evidence that cannabis cures cancer. So I think the anti-people need to understand that cannabis can be just quality of life-saving, not life-saving, but quality of life-saving for people suffering with cancer, and that the pro-cannabis people need to see an oncologist, not use these huge doses of what's called Rick Simpson oil to try to cure their cancer. If you have cancer, you see an oncologist. So Hmm. I just think both sides need some humility, and, and we need to, like... Take this time where we're legalizing it to kind of reevaluate it and, and just try to have a more less polarized, less emotionally charged, more neutral, and more sort of accepting attitude towards it. I mean, if people are going to use it anyways, obviously, why criminalize it?
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Great. So I'm sure you're recommending more research and more public health um, information uh, delivering in med schools as well as for you know, in the field of psychiatry?
1: Absolutely. But again, it has to be true information that they're disseminating, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't help when we had the D.A.R.E. program. I mean, I keep going back to that. Right. But like, it just, you just blew your credibility with teenagers. And like, once you blow your credibility with the teenager, good luck getting it back. You're like, maybe 30 years later. Right. So we need to actually tell the truth. But there are harms and there are benefits. And both are equally as important. And again, I just think it's, we're at a critical point where like, 94% of Americans think that um, cannabis people should have legal access to medical marijuana but then the doctors know so little about it they can't have a sensible discussion. So right. the main takeaway is we need more education like across the board and that we need to come to some, I truly think there's some middle ground that we could come to. I think we could all agree that cannabis helps people with anxiety insomnia, and chronic pain. There are yeah. a lot of psychiatrists that don't agree with that, but they're flat out wrong. We can agree that cannabis shouldn't be used by teens, unless, you know, whatever, they're dying of cancer, shouldn't be used by pregnant women or breastfeeding women unless whatever else they'd be using would be more dangerous and shouldn't be used or should be used of extreme caution in people with a history or a family history of psychosis, like schizophrenia. There is common ground that we could all agree upon. You wouldn't know it from how polarized the debate is. and. I think as the science comes in, we could just expand this common ground and all move forward together. Mm -hmm. And your website is www.petergrinspoon.com. It's grin like smile, spoon like fork. (laughs) I haven't heard that (laughs) one before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, people mangle my name uh, so much that uh, my dad came up with that.
0: That's, That's really funny. Well, it's, it's such a pleasure becoming a friend and, um, sharing stories and um and thank you for agreeing to do this and a speedy further recovery from your car accident i'm very grateful you You
1: know i'm grateful too it could have all been over and i very much enjoyed this conversation and i i enjoy all of our conversations and i look forward to the next one
0: yeah so thanks so much thank you That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience, and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag, I Got Out, and join our online community at igotout.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.